0: Hello and welcome to the NLCC Sermons Podcast. On the podcast with me today is Tim. Hello. And I am Preston. And we are continuing our series this week on the Lord's Prayer, taking it into the next few phrases. But before we get to that, a couple of announcements for you. Uh, First of all, we're doing our Red Envelope fundraiser for our students going to CIY Move. And this is a fundraiser that we do almost every year uh, to really help our students be able to afford to go on a trip as amazing as CIY move is. So if you're visiting us in person, you can pick up a red envelope in the lobby, and uh, there's a number on the outside. You pick whatever number you're willing to uh, give, and you fill the, the envelope with that amount of money, drop it in the box. If you're giving online, you can also just go to uh, North Liberty.cc, hit the giving tab, and make sure you select the red envelope drop down box to give specifically to this fundraiser that we're doing. Uh, We also want to let you know, and this is more for our uh, specific church family, but we're starting something called Block Parties, and we want to invite you to engage missionally in your own backyard. And the way this works is we want to equip you with all of the resources that you could possibly need to host a block party in your neighborhood with the goal of meeting your neighbors, connecting with your neighbors. We know that it can be a little bit intimidating or sometimes awkward to meet your neighbors and we wanna make that as easy as possible. So we're doing block parties this summer. If you're interested in uh, applying for hosting a block party, visit northliberty.cc blockparty block party, all one word. And there's a little bit more information there for you and there's a, a button there so that you can apply to host a block party in your own neighborhood. So the sermon this week, we continued our conversation on the Lord's Prayer, and we got into the next few words of Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, So I wanted to sit down with Tim and and get a little bit of insight to what this looked like. Before we talk about this week, can you connect what we talked about last week to what we talked about this week?
1: Well, one of the things we're focusing on as Jesus teaches us how to pray is the need to be intentional with our prayers uh, in pivotal times. And as followers of Jesus— Uh, we acknowledge that God sees what we don't. He understands uh, what we can't. And so we talk about how Jesus in the Lord's Prayer uh, gives us permission um, when he invites us to talk to God as Father. And for a lot of us, you know, our prayers tend to be just for emergency use only. When things get bad, then we'll talk to God. Or when we want something from God, that's when we usually talk to him. But Mm -hmm. Jesus says says it's got to be deeper than that. And while God wants you know, something deeper, something more significant than, than just a transactional relationship, uh, we, we can't doubt for one minute that he wants to hear from his kids. He wants that personal, personal intimate relationship with, with us. And as, he, as Jesus taught us um, uh, through this prayer as well, that we're supposed to hallow God's name, that he is above all, that he is overall, that he is in, in all, that he has no equal, and our focus is supposed to be on him and him alone. So now when Jesus prays this part, this phrase that we're talking, we talked about yet yesterday, um, your kingdom come, the listeners at the time probably heard this language a little differently than we do today uh, because we tend to, to hear this as very much religious or spiritual language and because you know, we've memorized the prayer. And so it's just kind of a ritual thing for us. But for the people in Jesus' day, th- this was a political language of prayer that you know, your kingdom come. To talk about an incoming, incoming kingdom, especially for the Jews, because you know they they recognized um, or they associated the kingdom of God uh, with them as a nation of Israel, and they would have associated language like "Your kingdom come" with the liberation from Rome mm. and restoration of their of their nation, and they would have been thinking in terms of political uprising. Yeah. And so, many of the the Jews in Jesus' day um, saw Jesus as the coming Messiah, the ruler, the king, and and that was going to. That was going to snuff out uh, any oppression from their enemies which included the oppression from the religious leaders of their day
0: i really appreciate how you have the last couple of weeks you've really shown us what it would have sounded like to the original hearers this prayer um, today it's become something that's almost routine regimen um, and it loses a lot of what it would have meant to hear it for the first time and i appreciate you bringing that to light in in context into the year 2021. 20, uh, Tim, when preparing this message, what is one thing that you learned that really surprised you?
1: Um. How p- political uh, the phrase that phrase that Jesus used, "Your kingdom come," is. I've I've never I've never looked at it like that before. Until I started, you know, looking up some of the commentaries and what other uh, theologians were saying, I'm thinking, "Wow, this is this is crazy stuff." Because we just don't think in terms like that again because we we just memorize this prayer and it's just something we say out of memory and it's not it's not from the heart it's just ritual and uh again when the listeners heard jesus say that they're like all right you know we finally got somebody who's going to take over and destroy rome and any any oppression that the jewish people were were dealing with and uh, and so that was kind of shocking to me when i started reading that stuff
0: Thanks for bringing some extra context into this message for us. Let's go ahead and listen in on this message in the Your Kingdom Come series.
1: If you are joining us for the first time, we are in a series where we are going phrase by phrase through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And one of the things that we're focusing on as Jesus teaches us how to pray here is the need to be intentional with our prayers in pivotal times. That there are certain intersections of life that have long-term implications. That there are certain decisions that get made that have a ripple effect far beyond what we we might realize in the moment. That's true for us as a country. It's true for us as a church. It's true for us as individual uh, Christians. And whether uh, we know it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we admit it or not, we are always at some key intersection in life. We are always making some decisions, some choices that play out in ways that we don't even realize. And so our commitment then is to be walking on this journey with God. That we want to keep in step with him, that we want to keep uh, that connection uh, open so that we are praying our way through those moments in life. Now as a follower of Christ, uh, we acknowledge that God sees what we don't, he understands what we can't. He sees the whole, we don't, under, uh, we don't see uh, what's right, in, we only see what's right in front of us, uh, right in front of our noses, in our, in our feelings, our emotions. We, we only see a little part of our world and as a church we want to be a people of prayer so that God can help us see the bigger picture. Now while everyone else uh, can be a little bit obsessed Uh, with money and hobbies and jobs and elections, with everyone being obsessed with looking to the left or looking to the right. We want to be a people. We want to be a church where we find our hope, where we find our strength, our joy, our peace, our wisdom, our worship that only comes from God. And the only way that happens is by looking up rather than to the left and to the right. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that God is our Father that Jesus in the Lord's Prayer gives us permission. He invites us uh, to, wa- or to talk uh, to God as Father. And that word Father is, the, is this close, um, intimate relationship word. It's a word that the rest uh, of the audience that that particular day when Jesus was teaching would have made them feel extremely uncomfortable. Now, that's not how you and I though have learned you know, to address God. And yet Jesus says, this is how you should pray, our Father. And so we come to God as a child, would come to a loving and trusted and faithful dad. And for a lot of us, though, prayer tends to be for emergency purposes only. It's kind of your personal fire hydrant. You'll pray, but only when things are really bad, only when you want something from God. And we tend to approach prayer as transactional rather than relational, meaning that it's it's pulling up through a drive-through, right? It's this approach that you kind of say, God, here's what I want from you. Uh, here's what I need. So let's, let's go ahead and order that. And you take my, my, take my order and I'll drive around and you have it ready for me when I get there. And that's how a lot of us tend to think of prayer. And we do that when things get pretty bad in our lives. And that's not the kind of relationship God wants. He wants it to be personal. A, a few year, years ago, a bunch of us... Uh, From here, went to uh, the Dominican to support a CASAS mission. And as we got into the Chicago airport, uh, we all got through except for Jody. And they decided that, you know, his carry-on needed a little extra special attention, uh, which was kind of nice, but it was unnecessary, And so we all had, you know, these battery power tools in our carry-ons, but for some reason, Jody's needed a little more attention. We we don't have much time to get to our flight, and and a number of us start to pray to get him through the security. God, you know, can you please intervene for us because we we don't want to miss our flight. And finally, God answered our emergency prayers to get to our gates on time, and it really wasn't about Jody, it it was about getting to our flight on time. And on our return flight, while checking in at the Dominican airport, once again, Jody gets stopped. All of us made it through, uh, but for some reason, Jody's luggage needed that little extra attention again they had this little gadget you know I, I don't know if it smelled or whatever it did but it, it, it was able to detect the chemicals that were inside batteries that we all had in our luggages but again for some reasons jody's caused a stir and we all went through we were kind of standing off to the side awaiting and then we started praying you know for god to intervene again and Jody finally catches up with this and we get up to the second floor and then his name jody healy could you please come down to the security and he's looking at me like, "Oh my gosh, what happened? What's going on here?" And he goes, and I say, "I, I, I don't know. Good luck," <laughs> you know. And, and and you know, he said, Dad, "Tim, please be praying." I said, "Jody, it was nice knowing you. Okay." But, but 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 we all saw him go downstairs. And quite a bit later, he comes back up. He has that nervous smile on his face, and and he's just, man, i I've been, I was praying the whole time. But during that particular time, I noticed that everybody else was was huddled around the door to get into the airplane, hoping that our name wasn't gonna get called down to the security as well. But finally Jody comes up again with that smile on his, you know, that nervous smile on his face. But once again, you know, we're praying there, Lord, please let us get on the plane back to America. And by the way, please keep Jody comfortable. And and you know that's when things like that happen in life, you start reflecting that that is how oftentimes we find ourselves running behind, busy, uh, frantic, nervous, afraid, and it's in those moments that we tend to send up uh, uh, prayers asking for God for, to help us, but other than that, we're doing fine on our own, God. And that's how many of us approach prayer. And the Bible would teach that because God is uh, His Father, he wants something deeper than that, he wants something much more relational than, than that. But it would also say that God is okay with you and I taking our little battery issues and airplane issues to him. He's okay with that stuff. He's he's a father, so he doesn't mind when we talk to him about what some people might think is, is insignificant or trivial. God is okay with us talking to him about that. That's the nature of a dad and child relationship. Now, some haven't understood that. You grew up in a church, a tradition where talking to God was what, very much more formal, a formal process where you just write recited all these pr- prayers that you memorized. But what God, uh, God wants from us, he, he's giving us, Jesus is giving us permission to come to the Father and to go into your room and just to have a simple, personal conversation with him. Just like if your dad is sitting on the edge of bed, you know, getting ready to tuck in at night. You have that simple conversation. That's the basis of our relationship with him, a, fi- a father-child relationship. And if we don't understand that, then we miss out on the, deny- the dynamic that God's looking for in our prayer, simply talking to him. Now, if, I'm, if I met you in a, a line uh, at Walmart uh, waiting to be checked out and you asked me to buy you some peanut M&Ms and some chew, uh, that would be a little awkward, a little weird, Okay. Uh, it would kind of violate, you know, the basis of our relationship. If you ask uh, what time it was, well, you know, that's okay. That's, that's kind of appropriate. But, but, but the minute you ask me to buy you something in the candy or the nicotine, you know, section, it starts to get a little weird. But if my kids are in line with me and they say, hey, Dad, can you get me some peanut and M&Ms and a can of chew, that's not violating our relationship. That, that's okay uh, other than the chew, okay? is my... My, my kids never did that, at least that I know of. Uh, they, they, they can ask me things like that. I, I, may, I may say yes, I may say no. They're my kids, though, and that's the basis of our relationship. They can ask me stuff like that, and that's the way God wants us to approach him. And while God wants something deeper, something more significant than just transactional relationships, don't ever doubt that for a minute that he just, he just wants you to talk to him. He wants to know what's going on in your life because he cares about what you care about. And so we have the freedom and the permission from Jesus to come to God and say, Our Father, it's personal. Again, the prayer begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We talked about that last week, and then this week, the phrase that we're going to focus on is, Your kingdom come. Now, when Jesus says says this in his prayer, "Your kingdom come," the listeners at the time probably heard the language a little bit differently than we do today, because we tend to hear this as very much a religious or spiritual language. Because you know, we've had this memorized since we were little kids; we can recite it, no big deal. We, we've been taught this throughout our whole lives, and it just sounds like churchy language. But the thing is, we know the end of the story. The disciples back then didn't know that but for the people in jesus day that was that was a political language for 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 to pray your kingdom come to talk about in, an incoming kingdom especially for the jews because they realized or they recognized or they associated the kingdom of god with them as a nation of israel those things were synonymous. And so when Jesus says, your kingdom come, what they're hearing is, let the nation of Israel be established. Let God overthrow the Roman occupation. And church, don't kid yourself. The Old Testament and the New Testament is full of spiritual and political ramifications that are off, a lot of overtones here that are intertwined. And so Jesus, his listeners hear this very much as a political prayer, not just because of the language that he spoke, but because of the location which Jesus is teaching this lesson. Remember, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And where he's teaching this is in a mountain region above the Sea of Galilee, which which is a, is significant because this is where the revolutionaries of Jesus day would hide out and they would try to rally people uh, to with some kind of you know revolutionary message uh, typically focused on overthrow, uh, overthrowing the Roman government and then they would hide out in the mountain region there where Jesus was teaching and I'm pretty sure there were revolutionaries there when Jesus is going over the sermon out to, on, uh, of the mount here uh, and and he's talking about beginning with the kingdom of heaven and he ends with the kingdom of heaven and he's not teaching uh, this in a temple or in a house of worship and and, and it's a a not so subtle message right that a new kingdom is, is coming all together he's trying to usher in a new kingdom here and that would have the, 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 they would have heard this is a political message. They would have associated language like your kingdom come with liberation from Rome and restoration for their nation. They would have been thinking in times of political uprising. And so when Jesus prays this prayer, his listeners would have been assuming that asking God your kingdom come is another way of saying, God, you bring about political change. Would you please solve our political problems with some political answers? You know, wipe out the other side. Occasionally in that region there would be a rebellion and there would be people who would rise up against uh, the Roman occupation and typically it would end with dozens or thousands of people being crucified along the dusty roads of Palestine. Then Jesus comes preaching this message about a new kingdom coming mixed in with the people that uh, have been waiting for the Messiah. They, they, They were sure that the Messiah was going to put an end to the nation of Israel's misery. They were sure the Messiah was going to take some sort of political office and establish himself as kingdom. His closest followers even thought that up until the day he he ascended into heaven. And so immediately, as soon as Jesus starts teaching what you see in his ministry, these different political parties pulling on him, trying to pull him over to their side. Now, they may not call themselves political parties in that day, but that's what they would be called today because they most certainly had these social ideologies just like our parties do today. And so allow me to touch on a few of those political parties of that time. And, if, and you, I'll let you draw the corresponding parallels or ideology to what would be similar today because that's on you. But there were the, the zealots, the zealots, they were a group of people who believed that the right thing to do was to overthrow the Roman government by any means necessary. And that included violence. And it, uh, it wouldn't be unusual for a zealot to hide a knife in his cloak and hide out in a crowd. And when a Roman soldier would walk by, they would stab him and then disappear back into the crowd. They would justify the violence by saying, "You know, we've gotta put an end to the hatred and the abuses and the injustices and the bigotry and the violence that our people have been receiving for decades and desperate times call for desperate measures. Right? Right? the zealots thought the Messiah would be on their side because they were most passionate and they were the most committed they were the ones that wanted to end the privilege they were looking for the Messiah that would come wielding a sword and would declare victory all on the battlefield and then you had the the Essenes they had a much different approach, approach because they would they would kind of withdraw they saw the culture as so corrupt they saw the, the Roman government as so powerful and the right response for God's people was to have nothing to do with it, to withdraw from it completely to not engage in it, to, to have no part of it. They, they thought the Messiah would be on their side, that the Messiah would come and he would see how they had withdrawn and, and that they would separate themselves and that that would be you know or they would be rewarded. For positions with positions of power, and then you had the Pharisees. They they taught uh, they thought that the way to turn things around politically was to legislate it. They thought, well, look, if we can just create and enforce enough laws for people to follow, that's gonna bring about change. And so the Pharisees thought the way to bring about change was from the outside in, establishing enough systems so that you can force people to believe what you believe and value what you value and behave the way they want you to behave. And, and, and then they were forcing it on the culture. And then you had the Sadducees. They were much more liberal. They would, they would water down the laws of Moses. They would interpret scripture in such a way that it wouldn't cause you know, problems politically or, or culturally. They could get along with everybody, but they stood for nothing. And so they had this attitude towards the Roman government. If you can't beat them, you might as well join them. They were hoping that the Messiah was gonna be on their side because they would offer the quickest pathway to power. They they were in good terms with with the political powers of the day, comparatively uh, at least, and so the Messiah would want to establish himself in some sort of political office, establish himself as some kind of earthly king, and they would offer the best path for that. They They were the ones that could do that. And so you have all these different groups trying to pull Jesus on their side, and you see it throughout his ministry. In fact, in John chapter 6 is a good example of this, where the people are so insistent that Jesus address the problems through political pathways that they're going to try to make him king. They're going to try to force him to be king, whether he wants to be king or not. And this happened, this this attitude came right after Jesus fed to 5,000. And so they're thinking, ah, we get this guy in power, we get all the free stuff we want. The thing about it is, when you have always been and always will be Jesus, the creator of the world, John says this in in his letter, that Jesus was God in the beginning, was with God in the beginning, and nothing uh, uh, has been made without him, and and that if that's the office that you hold, then kind of being the king of the world or earthly king is, is kind of a demotion. It's like many church signs and yards, uh, church signs and, and yard signs I drove past this last election a season and it said, this year I'm casting them out, vote for Jesus Christ as, as president. And, and I guess they were trying to rally people to, you know, to write Jesus and you know, write in for presidency. Sorry, he's not gonna do it. He'll never run for that because that would be the ultimate demotion for him. He owns the world. He doesn't need to be president of the United States of America. But that's what people wanted to do then as well. They, they wanted to force him into being king and they were, they were frustrated because Jesus did not concern himself with any of these groups. He, he comes on the scene, everybody wants to, to, to know what convention you know, he's gonna speak at, what party he's going to endorse, what platform he's going to, to run on and he doesn't do any of it. And You know what he does? He runs on his father's platform. And nobody else's. In fact, he seems almost unaware of the political landscape of the day. And it seems that he barely even addresses it because he was living at a time where where his own people were facing all kinds of injustices, but he refuses and he resisted. Now that's not to say that Jesus wasn't political. He was very political in a different way. Instead of, of assuming a position of power, the Bible talks about he came to be the servant of all. That was hard then, and it's hard today to be the servant of all. He ushers in a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. He ushers in a kingdom where the greatest will be the servant of all. And that's, that's difficult for us because we assume, as the people did then, that when you pray your kingdom come, it means political power. That's how the kingdom is going to come in, they thought. If we have enough political power, that's that's the way it comes. That may be the way of earthly kingdoms uh, operate, but it's not the way our heavenly kingdom operates. A great example of this is right before Jesus begins a sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say blessed are the powerful and, the, and blessed are the uh, successful and the rich and the elitist and the education are educated. He says blessed are those who recognize their dependence upon God. Now you can be powerful and you can be successful and still be poor in spirit. You can still recognize that your dependence is on God, but it's difficult. Because our tendency, our innate approach, is to think that that this this happens is only it only happens through power, so that we can control people. But what's interesting, as you study church history, is what you'll find in the kingdom of God it had advanced dramatically at times in history where it did not enjoy political power and it did not enjoy a cultural popularity. It would not be difficult, in fact, to make a case that it did, not so, it did so, much, such much, so much more dramatically during those seasons of the church history. And so maybe the church across America especially should stop putting uh, most of their time and energy into becoming relevant and start preaching the word of God in truth and love. That's relevant. That's what changes lives. It's the spirit of God through his word. Philip Yancey explains why this is in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And if you've never read anything by Philip Yancey, he's a great author. Um, but uh, he, this is what he says. Regardless of the merits of a given political issue, whether it is a pro-life lobby on the right or a justice lobby on the left, Yancey says political movements risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power. Now, it doesn't mean that that, that political movements are wrong. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved in that kind of stuff. What it does mean is that we need to be aware that there is a tendency to pull on ourselves the position of power. We, 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 We think power is the key. The problem is that the more often than not, power smothers out the love of God. He goes on to say this, from Jesus I learned that whatever activism I get involved in, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved in activism, we are the people, right? We the people are the government. We have a right and we have a responsibility to be part of that, but what we need to be aware of is that it must not, it must not drive out a servant's heart and love and humility. Because the moment it drives out love and serving and humility, we betray the kingdom of heaven because God's kingdom is built on the foundation, not of power and success, but of serving and loving and humility. This is the kingdom that Jesus is trying to usher in right now. And so in this moment of time in our country story, if you will, Jesus wouldn't be part of any of it. His kingdom come, not ours. Amen? Amen. And when we pray, your kingdom come, we think in terms of pol- power or political force. We, we, we tend to think that there's an outside in approach. We, we, we force people to comply with our standards and our beliefs and our values, harsh attacks and defensive spirits and hateful tones and, and spiteful uh, threats and, 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 and are often the weapons of the world. But what happens then? The answer is true politically, is true in your marriage, It's true in all relationships that those approaches, they don't tend to do much good. The truth is that people double down on their positions when they feel criticized and disrespected and dismissed and judged, or or my brother Jody would say they don't feel like they have a, a seat at the table. Well. What we're, what we're challenged to do as a people of the kingdom is to stand up for the God for God's truth, to not compromise what the Bible teaches us on truth and love here. We are to be standing on his word, to always, to always have a heart that is motivated by love and never confuse our opponents, that we are to love and we are to serve and we are to have a spirit of humility and to understand that there is a real enemy out there that's what Paul teaches in Ephesians, that our enemy is not flesh and blood. And Jesus taught the kingdom of God advances when people's hearts and minds are changed. We want to, as a nation, you know, honor God with the laws that we pass, I, I get all that. We wanna honor God with the people that we put in, into office. I get all that stuff too. But we also want to understand that the kingdom will come and it doesn't depend on a vote. Or popular opinion. If you think that God's in heaven saying to the Holy Spirit, "Oh, we had all these plans. We had all these plans. You know, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. Doggone it! You know, if it doesn't turn out the way we want it to turn out. I mean, we see the polling. We saw this stuff going on. If it doesn't turn out the way we think it should, I I don't know what we're going to do. What do you think, Holy Spirit? I don't know, God. What do you think? You're fooling yourself if you think those kind of conversations happen up there. Do we actually think that the conversations that God, and Jesus, and Holy Spirit are having, that kind of, they're having that kind of conversation every two and four years? That they, they watch our daily news and then they make an educated guess? What we find, if we're intellectually and spiritually truthful in the kingdom of heaven, is that it's not a, a, a political solution, primarily, and, and I know you, know you expect me to say this because we're in worship, you know, and, and I'm a preacher, but it's Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Last number of days, you know, I, I'm bored with TV and all this other stupid stuff, so I turn on YouTube. <laughs> I've been watching all these YouTube responses to all the, the good that people are doing for one another. The different races just meeting each other's needs and every one of them talk about if the world would just learn to love and give each other a hug. And talk about the good stuff. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's Jesus' message. That's the message of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet the church has even removed himself from that. Church, it's about God. It's about his kingdom come, not ours. Former President Franklin Roosevelt put it this way, I seriously doubt if there's a problem, political or economic, that will not melt before the fire of spiritual awakening. And I agree with that. That's what we pray for. We pray for repentance, we pray for revival. That's the kind of awakening that we ask God for, that that, that he would awaken our hearts and our minds. That's where we put our hope. We don't put our hope in what's going on in Washington, D.C. We put our hope in heaven. We don't put our hope in the Constitution, which I am a huge proponent of. We put our hope in the Bible. We put our hope in Jesus Christ. We put our hope in God. And when we pray your kingdom come, we also understand that it is a commitment to live it out. Some of those YouTube things that said, they always say, well, I wish some people, oh, that's so nice, that's great, I wish wish more people. And one person kept responding, well, how about wishing other people to do it and you do it? Instead of us talking about love, talking about God, or not talking about this, how about we just show it and, and demonstrate who he is? He is an awesome God that we serve. We get to call him Father. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about what this looks like to live out the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And he addresses an unjust law during the time in the land where Rome, any any Roman soldier could tell any Jew, any person, you you need to carry my, my gear for a mile. And it didn't matter what the the Jew was doing. They had to drop what they were doing and pick up that Roman soldier's gear and walk a thousand paces. And and then they could drop it and go back to doing what they were doing. But at any given time, a Roman soldier could come up to you as a a Jewish citizen and you carry my gear for the mile and you had to do it. Well, that's not fair, that's unjust. What about my rights, right? You know, that, that doesn't seem right, right? Jesus, Messiah, Lord, what what are we gonna do with this one? It's messing with my my our, our lives, it's it's inconveniencing my family. What about what, what about my job, my livelihood? It is fair. What do we do? Protest, boycott, sign a petition, get on Facebook and and start a you know some kind of page. How how are we gonna handle this one, this situation, Jesus? And Jesus, is like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't, oh my, I didn't even even think about this. You're right. We do need to do something d- uh, different. We we need to make some changes here. Let's do this. Whoever asks forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. That is not what we meant. We don't want any part of that. We don't like this rule. It's ridiculous. Uh, we, we want it to go away. And Jesus says, Yeah. When they ask you to go one. Go with them too. That was Jesus' response to those who oppressed his people. Church, you tell me what would change in this world if the people of God started to do this kind of stuff. You tell me the kind of impact it would have if we pray your kingdom come, God, and then we then when somebody who's who's making our life difficult asks us, you know, to go with them one mile, we go with them one mile and say, okay, you know, you all done, thank you for helping out. You say, no, 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 I enjoyed that that, that walk, that talk that we had together this last mile. I'm going to go with you another mile and help you out. When we start humbly serving, then the kingdom of God starts getting ushered in. That's how the church changed Rome. Let me encourage you to read another good book, The Rise of Christianity by sociologist Rodney Stark. Uh, He talks about the the fledging Jesus movement uh, that changed the world. And he he says that the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians were the minority. They had no rights. They couldn't vote. They were taking away their businesses. uh, And and, uh, Emperor Nero tried to destroy them. And yet the kingdom of God exploded on the scene. How did they do it? Well, they stood in stark contrast to the kingdom of this world. Everybody was looking for control and power, but Jesus' followers didn't have any of that, and so they served and they loved. You had the early church going into the woods and mountain areas where people would leave their deformed children or their disabled children and let them die out there far away so they couldn't hear the, the crying you know, voices of their kids, and yet the church would bring those children back and raise them and care for them as their own, and so you have unwanted kids that the church opened their arms to. That is how the kingdom of God was and is ushered in when we take care of our orphans and our widows and their distress. James talks about that. How are we doing with that kind of stuff, Church? because when you start praying your kingdom come, that means you, you're gonna love your enemies. It means you pray for the people who disagree with you, including your spouse. It means you, you bless people who make your life difficult, including your spouse and kids. It means, whether it's politics or any other area of your life, that you're, you, that you're motivated by a, a not self, no selfish ambition here, but you're putting other people's needs ahead of your own. Now, that doesn't, that means you neglect your own. It's not what the scripture teaches. Paul says in Ephesians about Jesus, but in humility, consider others more important, to consider it, don't be selfish. And then he goes on to say that Jesus made himself nothing taking the very nature of a bondservant. He's the king of the world. He owns it and yet he came to serve. So this your kingdom come is a surrender prayer saying God, I'm giving my, uh, my kingdom for your kingdom. It's not a prayer that says, God, you come and watch and support my awesome life. It's a prayer that says, God, would you come and rule my life? Here's a a beautiful story that happened in South Central LA. This is one of the worst places uh, for gang violence. Uh, in the United States, and at one point there were 75,000 gang members uh, in that area, more than 60% unemployment, but just a couple of years ago, a man by the name of Alfred Lomas grew up on the streets of L.A., and here's a picture of him, I hope it got up there. Is it up there? Did you guys get it? Well, anyway, look up Alfred Lomas, okay, but he spent 29 years in a gang, and he worked as a hired gun, He saw nothing but violence and drugs since the age of 12. The day he was released from prison, he found himself hungry and walking down an aisle in South Central L.A., and he saw something weird, you know, walking towards him. It was an elderly, white, little bitty woman. They were in South Central L.A., and, and he's thinking to himself that as soon as she sees him that she's gonna turn and go the other way, and so he walks to the other side of the alley, and then she walks to the other side of the alley, and, and he walks back to the other side, and, and she walks back to the other side, and he does it again, and he finally realizes that she, she wants to talk to him, and it turns out that she had gotten lost from her church group. She was on a mission trip uh, there in, in South Central LA, and she was lost in the alley, and she asked Alfred if he was hungry. This woman is pretty brilliant. She goes, are you hungry? Yeah, I am. He goes, well, if you show me where I, if you help me get back to where I need to be, I'll make sure that you've got plenty of food to eat. And he helped her find her way, and she, and she fed his hunger. And and the places she was helping out was called a Christian uh, ministry called the Dream Center that reaches out to people like Alfred. And he spent years in that that particular program uh, and experienced something he'd never known before, unconditional love. And then he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ and he spent the, the years since then working to bring the kingdom of God into the streets of South Central LA. And Alfred worked to accomplish something that the city of LA thought was impossible. He had brokered a truce between the gangs there that he called an understanding. There was three main gangs there. Violence began to drop dramatically. His efforts started to draw attention to the uh, different media outlets, and many of the articles on this uh, talked about how the city of L.A. uh, and their violence had... uh, dropped dramatically that they spent tens of millions of dollars on this problem. They passed all kinds of ordinances you know, and laws, and then there's been all kinds of you know, political rhetoric and, and trying for decades to solve the problems of violence and, and gang wars and racism and privilege and injustice. but Alfred and others like him came onto the scene and they're bringing the kingdom of God, which is the one thing that began to change all the problems. And that's what happens when Jesus comes onto the scene. When the kingdom of God comes to Rome, when the kingdom of God comes to South Central LA, when the kingdom of God comes to to the United States, when the kingdom of God comes to North Liberty, to your neighborhoods, to your homes, that's when things begin to change. My prayer is that as a people who worship here at North Liberty, this would be our most important prayer. That we would pray and mean it, God, your kingdom come. And church, Please, let's, let's pray that prayer. Let's be part of demonstrating what God's kingdom looks like by humbly serving and loving people that are around us that God puts in our pathway. Stop majoring in the minors. Start talking about Jesus and what God has done for you and how he's changing your life through the North Liberty Church of Christ instead of wasting God's time on non-salvational issues, things that Paul told Timothy to stop wasting your time on stupid and shameful arguments that lead to Nothing. Church has got to get focused on our Father who is in heaven. Your kingdom come, not ours. And so church, if you want to talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus, and like any, any and every Sunday, that, 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 that invitation is open 24-7. If you're here today, you can meet us down front. If you're, if you're online watching, you can give us a call. You can go to our church uh, website and just push to connect with us if you want to learn who our Heavenly Father truly is.
0: Thanks for listening in to the NLCC Sermons Podcast. And if you haven't already, taken that step in your walk, we want to encourage you to visit northlibrary.cc and hit that connect with us button. We would love to have that conversation or just start that conversation with you about what it looks like to become part of the kingdom of God. Now, if this is your first experience with NLCC, uh, we also encourage you to hit that connect with us button just to let us know that you're watching and help us connect with you, get to know you a little bit better. Thanks for listening in and participating in this message with us. We look forward to doing it again with you next week.